Well, good morning, everyone. So good to see all of you. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Stephen Atherton. I'm one of the pastors here at WCC, and I'm so excited this morning because I have the honor of opening up the Word with you today, starting our Advent series that we've titled The Testimonies of the Coming King. And for those of you that are new with us this morning, normally we go through a book of the Bible, we go verse by verse, but sometimes throughout the year we take a step back and we go into a topical series, which is still, we're going to exegete a passage, we're going to discuss it, but with more of a focus on a specific topic. So that is what we're about to dive into right now. So as we thought through all the different angles that we could approach for this Advent season, we thought, what a better way to process and remember the first coming or the advent, which is what that means, than to see what others in Scripture said about Jesus and his coming. They're testimonies of the coming king. So a testimony is just something that you say, that you write, or even something that you do that proclaims truth. It's all testimonies. So we're going to dig into what was said written and done by God 700 years prior to Jesus' birth that we're going to see today in Isaiah, moving to Mary and then Zechariah, Simeon, and then last but not least, we're going to gather together Christmas Eve, and we're going to see the angels testifying in song, singing glory to God in the highest. Each of these saying, doing, or writing something that proclaimed the truth of the coming Savior and what he was coming to do. The truth of the covenants, the promises, and all the prophecies that were being fulfilled from Genesis 3, 15, 4. The truth of the one who came to save. The truth of the one who came to rescue and restore and how we're supposed to respond today with this truth on display. Now as we get ready to dive in to what I believe is one of the most detailed moving, and sobering prophecies from Isaiah 52 and 53, I have a confession to make. I have a confession. On October 29th, 2022, at approximately 10.30 a.m., at or around Emerald Lake Street in Severance, Colorado, I, Stephen Atherton, with sound minds, maybe, kind of, sort of, with several accomplices, including my wife, Jen, my son, Malachi, daughter, Amara, my mom, Ruthann, and my father, Steve, committed an act that some of you are just going to find downright terrible. Some of you, you might even turn your head and scoff when you hear what it is we did. And hopefully you don't walk out of here in disgust, but I just, I have to tell you that on that day, at that time, we set up our Christmas tree. <laughs> but we didn't just set it up. We did joyously. We were laughing and giggling the whole time knowing full and well that prior to November 25th, this is a heinous offense. <laughs> but I testify to you today that I love Christmas. I don't care who knows it. I love it so much that I'm willing to take the heat for what I'm just going to, I'm going to call it tree gate. That's, that's what this whole thing, I'm going to call it today. So in all seriousness, though, Christmas is my absolute favorite time of the year. And I feel like the sentiment's probably true for most of you in here. There's just something about it, something about it. It's, maybe it's nostalgia, maybe it's the lights, maybe it's the songs that we have on repeat for two months straight, or the presence, the images of baby Jesus everywhere. There's just something about it. And people want to act on the way that they feel about Christmas. We want to see the tree go up. 
We want to string the lights and sing to the elderly and give to the poor, do what Chad probably would do and write poetry about the beautiful snow glistening off of the mountain peaks. And in doing all these things, saying and writing all these things, we're testifying the truth that we know we're not. The truth that we love Christmas. Now, if any of you have spent any time with people in the church or with Christians during this time of year, you've definitely heard the phrase, Jesus is the reason for the season, right? You've got to say yes. Which is 100% true. Yes, Jesus is the reason for the season, but I think the picture we have of Jesus in this time just falls in line with all the other traditions that we testify makes Christmas Christmas. That little baby in swaddling clothes, sleeping in the hay all snug, the wise men standing over the manger even though they weren't there when he was born, all pointing to Jesus. Sorry, my notes just went crazy. They were all pointing to Jesus. But is it properly testifying Jesus? This Jesus that we see at Christmas, is it properly testifying him? Or is it just the nostalgia? Is it just tradition? And is it just Christmas as a whole that we're proclaiming our love for? Testifying that it is, in fact, about the lights, the tree, the snow, the presents, and a little baby. Now, are any of these things bad? No, none of these things are bad. Like I said, I love those things. It is bad, however, when those things become the focus. When those are what we think about most. So as we go through our passage this morning... I pray that you would take a good hard look at the Christmas season that we're stepping into. Look at your traditions, your priorities, and also your focus. Even with, oh, come all ye faithful, on repeat. Even with, Jesus is the reason for the season sign over your mantle. What are you testifying? What is the truth that you're proclaiming? Is the Jesus that you see at Christmas the same Jesus that you see at Easter. This Jesus we're going to see testimony of in the next five weeks did come as a baby, but did not come to be a baby. I pray as we go through our time, you'll be able to reflect on this question. What am I testifying with my actions, words, and what I write this Christmas season? What am I telling the truth of in my life with my actions, words, and what I write? Is the truth that you're proclaiming, I love Christmas? Or is it, I love Christmas because of the baby and what he came to do? Let's pray. God, Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this time and being able to just come together to worship you, to sing songs to you, to open your word. God, I pray this morning as we are diving into getting into this Christmas season that you would be seen clearly. 
God, that you would be made known. God, I pray that we would truly think through our priorities and we would think through how it is we are seeing you this, this season, God. So we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we get into our passage for today, I want to ensure that we have some context for what's about to be said. So this book in Isaiah is a compilation of prophecies that God gave to Isaiah around 740 B.C. So that's 700 years before Jesus came. 700 years. Which makes what we're about to study this morning even more profound. With the central theme of this book pretty well summarized in one phrase, and that is Yahweh saves. That's pretty much the theme of this entire book. God Almighty, the one who's high and lifted up, who is the only Savior and is working all things out for himself and the good of his people, will save his people. But in this book, we're not given a vague whisper of what's to come. It's not just Oh, hey, there's a guy coming sometime, someplace. Uh, That's not what this book does. We're given the entire story of the coming Savior 700 years before he came. We see God's testimony, the full truth of the one who would come being revealed. And we see it in three different points. We're going to be uh, seeing this entire time. We see it in his service in his sacrifice, and in his salvation. Service, sacrifice, and salvation. He was serving even though he was despised. He was sacrificing even though he was rejected. And giving salvation even though it was undeserved. We're going to be walking verse by verse through this passage in Isaiah, seeing these three points consistently throughout each section vividly pointing to his service, sacrifice, and salvation. Keeping the question that we just asked front and center as we go through this time, again, what am I testifying with my actions, words, and what I write? Bringing us to the very first line in this powerful passage with a powerful statement. Verse 13, 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So the servant being referenced before anything else is said, in the testimony from God himself, reveals that he's going to succeed. The servant sent is going to accomplish the task at hand. The most important mission ever to be planned out, ever to be laid out and executed, we know is going to be accomplished. By Jesus' perfect life, death, resurrection, ascension, and on the surface initially, as we think through this, it's, it's an incredible thought. We're like, wow, what a great way to start this passage. We know he's going to win. And it is an incredible introduction. Knowing that from the very beginning there was a plan in place to rescue you. But immediately after that comes a devastating truth. The devastating truth of how this was going to have to happen. What his service would actually look like. The purpose of that baby coming. The brutal details of why the manger happened. The truth and testimony from God regarding the Christmas story. 
So we're going to see in these upcoming verses a clear picture of this testimony that we're looking at today. So after the acknowledgement that he will be high and lifted up, we're confronted with the gory truth about this rescue plan and about the rescuer. What silent night, glory to God in the highest, with that star, with the shepherds, what they all point to. Verse 14 through 15. As many were astonished as you, at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. So it's hard to picture a person that's so maimed, that's so beaten, tortured, and bloody that he's beyond human appearance. He was so brutalized, he didn't even look like a man. When I was in seventh grade, I went to see The Passion of the Christ with some friends of mine from school. We showed up late, so I ended up in the front row of the theater, having no idea what I was about to experience. So as I sat there five feet from a 40-foot screen, I'll never forget the moment that the Roman soldiers brought Jesus into the courtyard, chained him up, and began to mercilessly beat him with the cat and tails. I'll be honest, I've never cried that hard in my entire life. I was just choking in my tears as I was staring straight up at the screen. Just looking in horror at what I was getting to see. And I didn't care that my friends were there. I didn't care that I was in public. Experiencing even the smallest glimpse of what Jesus went through, it struck me to the core. Seeing even a portrayal of the perfect, unblemished lamb being beaten to the point of no recognition, to this day, is still one of the most impactful things I've ever seen. With this picture in our minds of what he went through, these verses, they break. They break from the violence and they tell us why. It's like the storm calms for a moment and God says he will do this to sprinkle many nations. So all through the Old Testament, sprinkling was extremely important because it was a direct representation of making pure. It was a representation of making holy and making clean. Exodus 29, 21 says this. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and on his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. And then in Leviticus 14, 7, it says, And he shall sprinkle it, he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. And the list goes on. We can talk about the, whole, the sprinkling process all throughout the Old Testament. And it's actually also pretty consistently referenced in the New Testament as well. 
But in the New Testament, it's the truth of the Savior that's being talked about, made alive. Christ being testified to, Hebrews 9, 13 through 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? From the very beginning, we see the testimony from God that the Savior will come, he will be victorious, but he will be maimed and beaten beyond recognition. And for what? For the nations to be made pure, to be sprinkled clean. He went through unspeakable pain. For what? For us. His service, sacrifice, and salvation clearly on display. the one prophesied and being testified to, that would come as a baby in a manger, but should not stay in the manger in your hearts. No matter what time of year it is, it should be what he came to do that's at the forefront. Leading us to our next chapter and verses, starting in 53.1. Who has believed what has who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. What's so fascinating about the way that Isaiah writes, the way that God testifies here to the coming Savior, is the way that the passage continues to dig deeper into the depth of what's being said. So the initial verses were, as we said before, he's coming, he's going to conquer, he's going to be beaten and die the perfect death for the sake of perfecting the nations if they believe the truth about the coming Savior about the Savior we know today, into what we're seeing right now, the detail about the people's responses to him in the first advent. Even though the people were told about this coming, even though they were given explicit signs that he was coming, and we get to see, they got to see a clear picture of the Messiah, the people still didn't believe when all of it was in front of their faces. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Even though they heard it, they didn't believe it. With the arm of the Lord being God's power or the Savior revealed, the, the people still were blind. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. The world didn't recognize him. But God did. God, looking on at Jesus, lived out as he lived out this difficult life. For the sake of the dead sinners around him. Like a root out of dry ground, he had no majesty or beauty. So this made me think of a gigantic tree in the middle of the woods. For those of you that like to hike or hunt or just be in the woods in general, 
there's one thing that can be so annoying, and that's tripping over random roots sticking up out of the ground. Walking through the beauty of the forest, looking up at the magnificent towering trees in all of their splendor, when you end up face first in a pile of leaves because one of those pesky roots was sticking up out of the ground. This reminded me of this passage because this is the example that Isaiah was making through the testimony of God. The people were waiting for and looking to a magnificent king with money and power riding in on a white horse, this massive towering tree. But instead, he was just a root sticking out of the ground, something that no one wants and no one pays attention to. In fact, it can be more of a nuisance while you're looking to the majesty that you want to see. Like the root, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was despised. He dealt with grief and pain, feeling the rejection from those he came to save. From the time of the first advent, the baby Jesus we see in the manger this whole season, he came to serve, sacrifice, and save, but he was despised. Yeah, shepherds were there. Several others came to marvel when he was born, but King Herod was actually trying to kill him from the moment he was born. Silent night, holy night, but also someone's trying to kill you. Silent night, holy night, that his family had to escape Bethlehem after he was born, going to Egypt so he wouldn't be killed. It's not necessarily the picture that we have when we talk about Christmas, right? There was pain and rejection from day one. The first advent should not only be joyous because our Savior's come, but also a sobering reminder of why he came. And the pain it was to even live the life he did for us. Matthew 23, 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. O Jerusalem, I've come to give you everything, but you're unwilling to see the truth about why I even came. Surely he has borne our griefs, in verse 4, and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, spitten by God, and afflicted. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Jesus Christ did not just come to be a baby. He grew up living in service and sacrifice for our salvation, living perfectly while being rejected by the world. Living the sacrificial life, healing the sick, casting out demons, walking side by side with humanity, showing us what our lives should look like. Not just this, but he fully took on our sins, our burdens, our grief, he took on the iniquity of us all, not being beaten and marred for no good reason. Not being taken to the cross just because. The purpose of the advent and the sorrow, the marring, the pain, it culminates here. 
to bring us back into a right relationship with God. To bring us back, a perfect sacrifice had to be made. So go back to when we studied the book of Hebrews and we saw the depth of the sacrificial system played out in Leviticus and several other places. Even in Malachi, the book that we just finished with the people giving half-hearted sacrifices. Those sacrifices only temporarily atoned for the penalty of death. That penalty of death that we unequivocally all deserve. A sacrifice had to be made. And in it, perfection was required. But also propitiation was required. Jesus was beaten and broken, then in turmoil, was brutally bombarded with the sin of the world. He had to, propitiation, take on the full wrath of God. To make the sacrifice complete, the entirety of sin had to be abolished. The father turned his face away from him, saying, my God, my God, why have you rejected me? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus pled while being rejected by the people that he came to save, then being rejected by God the Father. But by those wounds we have been healed. Verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So sheep are not the brightest bulb in the toolbox. They're just not. That's why we're consistently being compared to sheep. Even though the shepherd is right there guiding us, was right there guiding them, guiding and leading, trying to keep us safe, we're running the other direction. But even so, even with that, he took it all on, he took it all on to bring us back. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He could have spoken, and every angel could have come to his side, putting a crown on his head, again singing, glory to God in the highest. But for our sake, he kept his mouth shut. Standing before Pilate, accused of crimes he did not commit, he kept his mouth shut. While the people were screaming for the while the people were screaming for the release of Barabbas, the murderer. Matthew twenty-seven, twenty-two through twenty-six. Pilate said to them, "Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ?" They all said, "Let him be crucified." He said, "Why? What evil has he done?" But they shouted all the more, "Let him be crucified." So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and all of our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. He did this for you. And I ask again, what Jesus is it that you see at Christmas? Is he the one that came to serve, sacrifice, and save, or something else? 
So I think so often in our Americanized culture, we see a distinct difference between Christmas and Easter. Some of you might even be thinking to yourself, it's Christmas. Could you please wait until April to talk about the crucifixion? And I say, if that is you this morning, you're not seeing Jesus in the manger the way that you should. The second that we only see the baby and forget about what the baby came to do, we're missing the point. And not honoring the one who came to save. The second it's only the baby we think of, we lose sight of the truth that Isaiah is trying to point out here. Verse 8 says this, 53.8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So it was the will of the Lord. In all, of Je- in all of this, Jesus knew the cost. Jesus, alongside the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, three in one, made this rescue plan together, putting this plan in place. Jesus knew the price. He knew the consequences for the sin of us broken sinners. But he still took it all on. He knew that at the end of the day, The only way to get us back, his people, was to stand between us and the Father. To be the intercessor between God and man. Knowing that this one sacrifice would fully fully appease God and bring us back into a right relationship with him. Verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So on that fateful, silent night, 2,000 years ago, when that star arrived over baby Jesus, so much joy because of the advent. So much joy because of the first coming. But the truth of that baby being born was a road of terrible pain and grief. It was a road of rejection, hatred, and at the end, utter destruction. That baby came in the stillness of the night and someday would grow up being beaten and unrecognizable by man. That baby came that oh-so-holy night and was placed in a wind manger and someday would grow up being forced to carry a splinter-filled cross. After being tortured to the point of death, he carried that cross for you. That baby came and was wrapped in swaddling clothes and would someday grow up and be forced to wear a crown of thorns. 
that baby came and would someday take on the sins of the world. Taking on that full wrath of God. Dying when we should have died. Feeling pain mentally, physically, and spiritually that none of us will ever comprehend or fully understand. That child came as the fulfillment of the rescue plan that was made in the garden. The rescue plan promised throughout the Old Testament for you. That infant we celebrate for Christmas should never remain an infant in our hearts. In fact, we should desire to remember the entirety of the story each time that we see a nativity. Each time Silent Night plays, each time a little drummer boy hits his drum, each time the beauty of the lights and the trees and the mountains and the joy hits you, remember the whole story. Remember that that baby came for a task no one could take on but God himself. who came to do all these things laid out in Isaiah. The baby in the manger should take us directly to the gospel that he came to do the unthinkable to save our dead souls. Knowing if we put our faith and trust in what he came to do in the first advent and accomplished in that horrific cross, defeating death and the grave rising again, we are saved knowing that in our sins we're disconnected from God completely. God can't have anything to do with sin in any way, but by his wounds we are healed. If we trust in what he did and what that baby came to do, we know we have salvation So it's not just an infant we should be celebrating. The testimony of God to the coming Savior should bring us to tears. It should bring us to our knees knowing what was given up for us. So again, I ask as I did at the very beginning, from your traditions, your focus, and your time this Christmas season, what is it that you are testifying? What are you testifying? Is it just what the world views as Christmas? Is it the baby in the manger? Or are you proclaiming the truth of the gospel that rings out because of what Jesus came to do? So as you leave here today, think about everything that we just discussed, all that we talked about. Thinking about God's testimony of the coming king, how are you acting on this testimony? As we act on our love for Christmas by hanging lights, setting up trees, how are we acting? How are we acting on the ultimate, most important truth? So I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you with a new tradition. Instead of just reading the first Advent with your family, I want you to think about reading through this passage in Isaiah as well. Instead of just remembering the arrival, remember the reason for the arrival. 
Remember his service, his sacrifice, and salvation. And as we do sing songs of praise for his advent, don't forget what advent meant. Again, what am I testifying with my actions, words, and what I write this Christmas season? Let's pray. God, again, thank you for this time. Thank you for your beautiful words that we can see. God, just your testimony of Jesus 700 years prior to him coming. Seeing the truth, the brutal truth of what you, Jesus, had to go through for us. I pray if there's anyone here this morning that has not truly put their faith and trust in you and what you did for them, God, that you would stir in their hearts. God, I pray that you would help each of us today to remember the reason you came and the reason it is we celebrate this Christmas season. Love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.